little bit, I don't know whether it feels different. It just feels a little bit lonely without Jill because Jill Krabis was part of the last couple of podcasts. She came with really nice chocolates. But now, now she's gone. She's gone back to California. I always miss Jill. She, I mean, she's just so missable because she's just like, she's so chatty. And I mean, some of the stuff she was talking about was so fascinating as well. It's just the little ray of Californian sunshine. She is. She had to go back. I remember she was, she was landing in the evening and then she had to make a few hundred chocolate truffles by the next day. So she was planning on wow. landing and just starting to cook. She's at that stage when she's talking to people, their taste. I mean, we're the official tasters. We have that title. But she's showing them to people, getting sort of advice on what she should do and what she shouldn't do. So it was literally off the plane and start making chocolates. Wow. Dedicated. I, I, I couldn't believe that she makes them all herself. What did you think happened? I just kind of assumed, I assumed she had not necessarily a factory. I understand it's a very small startup business at the moment, but I don't know. <laughs> just maybe she had a couple of people that she employed to, to do it, but she does it all herself. I didn't realise that she was the chocolatier. It's incredible. But yeah, a lot of pressure when she goes travelling to go away to do tournaments and commentate. I'm sure some of the orders get backed up, right? I thought you were about to say a lot of pressure to bring chocolates. I mean, that's oh, the problem. Oh, well, that is, yeah. <laughs> that's from when we were working together recently, a message came through from Arvin Palmer saying, I need to try some of these chocolates. So Jill had to make sure some were left. Then she put those chocolates in the hands of Miles McLagan. So I'm not sure actually you're going to ever make it Ooh, to Arvin. Oh, dear. <laughs> For, I actually had to bring something else in to distract Miles from eating Jill's chocolate so Arv could have it. It was all quite complicated. So okay. I was baking and I thought I can help Jill out here. So I sidetracked Miles with a muffin so Jill could stash the chocolates in the bag. So Arv got to taste the chocolates. Okay, smart. You've, you, you sound like someone who's worked a lot with Miles. <laughs> spent many hours alongside Miles McLachlan. And you, you have a remarkable insight into his mind and how he works. <laughs> it's just the kind of things you have to do. So oh, I've got to try the chocolates. But no, it was, it was fascinating listening to Jill talk, in, not just about the chocolates, but life after tennis. I'm sure that's something we'll go back to talking about because it, it is really interesting because tennis careers in many ways are, are very, very short. In terms of your post-tennis career today even if we just do today you've been it's involved dogs and tires is that right uh, pretty much yeah very glamorous <laughs> more spent training oh, he's doing really well i think we've turned a corner how do you Although know I, when he's doing well does he just obey you is um, that, a, that sounds really horrible doesn't it um <laughs> no but you know he's he's just starting to settle he's 11 months old so you know his hormones have been a bit up and down and some days he's just in a bad mood so um but he just seems like he's settling nicely and i sent you the video didn't i of him jumping over the hurdles did i send you the video yes it was like if if someone can imagine show jumping yes a lot lot smaller hurdles and mm. and with his lead kind of trailing i was a little bit worried he might trip over that but it no. was Sven doing they were very low weren't they could he go higher? two two hurdles no they're quite high for him two hurdles uh, we got them in the park but yeah I'm doing some sort of agility training but I'm doing it myself but yeah he went over two for me oh we can we'll post the video people can watch can it. we post it's the fine. video yeah sure but he's doing really well but yeah when he does stuff like that it's it's all good so he's he's doing he's just he's just settling a little less anxious and that sort of stuff he's just calming down and it's it's nice and the tire well I had a flat tire so that was sad. Unfortunately, <laughs> it meant I couldn't get to my lesson yesterday, so I had to cancel that one. But it's been fixed today, so we're going to try again today. 
We had a, a tweet at Tennis Podcast, if people would like to get in touch, ask questions, all bits and pieces, from Sarah, who wants to talk dogs. And I mentioned last week that our Instagram account is largely followed by dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah was referencing the fact that Johanna Conta has a new dog. <gasps> it is a new dog. Yes, a little puppy. Called Bono the Blue. He's got blue eyes. He's a mini, mini Dachshund. Mini Dachshund. And she's obsessed with you too, right? So she, so he's called Bono. Bono the Blue. But you would think that a dog, I would think, that a dog is a really bad thing for a tennis player to have because you're never at home. And it could be quite complicated, maybe getting a dog into some country. I don't even know how it works in all the countries. But it does... When you were playing, were dogs a thing to have on tour? Uh, there were a couple... Yes, just starting to be a thing. Uh, small dogs, yeah, mini Dachshund would work. But you could definitely travel with him or her. You can't can't travel with a Great Dane. Slightly more difficult and a lot more expensive. Imagine, imagine walking through the airport, need its own seat. <laughs> yeah, Sven's a bit big. You have to get it has to be a properly small dog to make it. You know, like I mean, Kevin Anderson travels with his dog, Lady Katie, Katie, whatever it is. Katie, is it Katie? Katie. Okay, Lady Katie. Katie. The Zverevs. A Chewini. Zverev's. Zverev doesn't, I think he largely travels. Not all. Denis Shapovalov has a couple of dogs. I'm not sure if they travel, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, I do, get, I remember speaking to Kelsey Anderson about Lady Katie and she said it has made a massive difference to Kevin because when he can come back, when he comes back from training, he can relax with the dog. It, it's something to change your mind. It's something other than tennis. You get back and there's a, there's a little little thing, a little dog that you can just, doesn't care if you've had a good day, a bad day, you've won or lost, you can just totally switch off with. So, and I imagine when you're traveling and you're on your own for big periods of time, it's a nice thing to have. I just think the logistics, I mean, we've talked many a time about how, and you look back and think, how on earth did you plot your way around the world? Imagine adding in a dog. Mm, it, it never crossed my mind at the time. It was not something I wanted to do or take on, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, it must be pretty difficult and change of time and planes and stuff and sitting in airports. You know, there aren't really any doggy areas in airports and you can't go out once you've gone in, right? So how does a dog do its business and stuff? It's, I don't know. It's a bit of a minefield. I'm sure it is very complicated, but it seems like it's worth it. But as you say, Kelsey Anderson is the one who looks after Lady Katie. So it's not down to Kevin. So Kevin doesn't need to be panicking before his match that his dog's got diarrhea or something. It's like he can just concentrate, <laughs> which is all right. Well, he might be slightly, he might be slightly worried. If you were traveling now, would you take Sven or would you have got a smaller version of Sven to take? Yeah. As I said, I don't think it's ever something that I would, I would like to do it. Definitely. I could, the actual having the dog with you, I think that would have really made a big difference to me. But I think that the travel is, as you say, I don't know if it's worth it. I think it'd be very complicated. If I had somebody coming with me that would look after the dog, um, then that would be fine. But like, what do you do when you're playing your match, especially if you're traveling by yourself? Or if it, a lot of people travel them and their coach and their physio and stuff. It's, it's hard to put it in the physio's job that they have to <laughs> sit and look after a dog whilst you're playing your match. <laughs> now, we have had recently, in recent days, big news from the Cavaday household. Oh, yes. We have. It, and it is actually pretty big news. Nothing to do with me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I mean, my big brother, Nick, who we keep saying we need to get on the podcast, I think he's running away from it, to be honest. He got a new job 
he is now the head coach at the National Academy in Loughborough. So the LTA have got this big new performance plan led by Simon Timpson. And there are going to be two National Academies. One is in Loughborough, one is in Stirling, and Nick will be the head coach at the one in Loughborough. So that's, um, it's a big job. It's a really big job. <laughs> I did say that to him. <laughs> Do you understand what you're doing? No, he's really excited. You know, it's something we've always talked about as coaches between the two of us, that whenever there's an opportunity to genuinely create your own setup, you've got to take it because it just happens so rarely. Unless you physically have enough money to go and build a centre, you very, very rarely are in charge, completely in charge, because there are other interests around and you know, the centre needs to make money and there are club members. And, and in terms of creating a performance programme in that environment, it can be very challenging and often completely falls through. Either compromises are made or it ends up shutting down a lot of the time. So to get this sort of opportunity where Nick's going to be really you know, fully in control and supported by his biggest mentor, Louis Kaye, who's going to be the performance advisor on behalf of the LTA. So he's going to pop up and, and um, you know, be there to be used by Nick for all of his experience and knowledge and everything that he's got, which is how Nick's been using him for past few years anyway. They've made a great team in that way. So yeah, really good news, I think. Now, I don't know if this is set out when he accepts the job, but so his job is if we break it down or the fundamentals of it is to bring the next generation of players through, show success through where he's working with those players. So has he been given a time frame? They're not saying within six months, we want to see a junior Wimbledon champion. Are they actually saying you've got the time and you've got the resources to do it how you want? Because it's such a results driven game. It is. And it's really, I mean, there are a lot of things that are incredibly challenging in, in this sort of environment. Yes is the answer. He's been given five, he's five years, essentially. I mean, if he messes it up before then, I'm sure they can, <laughs> it can be shorter. Uh, he's going to do a fantastic job. So, uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's really a brilliant coach. But uh, the aim is five years. They're looking at a five-year plan. And the National Academies, you're going to be taking kids who are 14 to the age of 18. So the idea is to prepare them and get them ready to be a professional player. That's... That's the, the point, which and I'm really glad that they've pushed it to 18 years old because a lot of uh, in years gone by, it's always been you need to be ready to be professional by 15. And that's how it was when I was when I was growing up, 15, 16. And if it was any later, I mean, even 18, 19 felt old, to be honest. But everything's changed so much. And uh, yeah, Nick will be in charge of a crop of players. I don't think there'll be many players. I mean, he doesn't start. It doesn't open until September. Uh, so he has almost a, well, he doesn't start the job um, until next year, but uh, he then has to kind of build his team. Yeah, go from there. I mean, he's a he's a fascinating coach to talk to. Um, I learn a lot from him. He has a, a really, I mean, attention to detail turned up to the max, <laughs> whatever you could ever imagine. He absolutely uh, loves all of that sort of stuff. Um, so he's, he's incredibly thorough. So it, yeah, it's exciting times. It's just really nice to get this sort of opportunity because as I say, even if you move into a ready set up academies and you take on a big role, you're still working within certain parameters. And especially, you know, Nick has come from being a coach on the tour where essentially it's just him and a player and he can coach how he wants and do it how he wants to do it. So I think this is really good because I think he'll have a, a lot of control over what he's doing and who he's going to be working with and the players that, you, that you, then you have to select the players. So if there are any good players listing, Loughborough's where you want to be. 
Now, if the call came from Cavaday Senior to Cavaday oh, Junior, right. <laughs> would you say, yes, brother, I'm coming? I mean, I don't I, know. I, my brother's amazing, but I'm not sure I could work with my brother. My brother is fantastic. We've got a very good relationship. Working together would be a different thing. How about you two? Well, we actually did work together once, but the tennis coaching world is a bit bizarre. As in, we worked together, but we really just worked in the same area. Uh, we were working at the same place, but I mean, you spend so much, so many hours on court. You just, you just kind of getting on with the job, really. I mean, and normally you have lunch at a different time to them and that sort of thing. So we didn't really spend a huge amount of time together. But you know, myself and Nick uh, definitely complement each other in terms of our coaching styles. The things that I'm, I'm good at are things that he needs to learn about, and vice versa. Uh, he's definitely much more experienced than I am as a coach because he's been doing it longer and he's had fantastic success. I mean, he took Aliash to the top 50, Dom Inglot to the top 20 in doubles. So he, he's been out there, they're doing all of that. You know, I, I haven't at all, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure. I think it depends what the job is. I mean, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> family rates should get paid pretty well. So <laughs> <laughs> who knows or maybe know. family rates he might think he can get you for a discount yeah that's probably yeah yeah <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't met my brother talking <laughs> like that it sounds like he, you know who he is um do you know what uh, to be honest I'm not looking at uh, any sort of role like that at the moment I'm pretty happy with with what I'm doing and my my balance of things but it's just one of those things that because roles within tennis at, at an elite level there are very few and they're all really specific and need really specific uh, experience and I know what I'm really passionate about and if a role in that particular area came up that was good then I absolutely would consider it but it's one of those things that you just can't plan for you can't you can't really you know create a, a role I, I don't want to just be a coach to juniors I want to do you know some more stuff particularly around the mental health side of things and working with younger players so yeah so if something like that came up then I'd, I'd probably have a look at it but I'm not really I'm not really looking at that it's a great opportunity for your brother do you think he will miss bits about life on tour and traveling because when we were talking to Jill Krabus as a player she loved it she loved everything about being a tennis player on tour and I know it's slightly different coming at it from a coach's point of view but do you think there or was there any hesitation I know the opportunity is great with Nick in terms of giving up that life of of traveling and and working just with one player I think it's it's just a really different thing uh, to be to live in one place is a big deal he's like I'm gonna have to be in Loughborough <laughs> every day a lot all the time not moving around I mean he's just never done that so being in one place I think is is going to be interesting I don't think he's necessarily concerned about anything he, he enjoyed traveling but I don't think he loves it like Jill loved it but he absolutely has no issue with it at all it's he doesn't really think about it too much he's just so focused on the job and doing the right job and doing the best possible job everything else that goes with it is just you know it's the consequence it's the it's the sacrifice or the conditions that, that, that or the choice it's the choice that he's making he wants to do the job and this is a job that he wants to do and along with that it means that he will have to relocate to Loughborough and he will be in one place for a long time and he'll be working with a much younger age group he hasn't really worked with that age group for some time because he's been on the tour so there'll be a, a fair amount of adjustment but I think ultimately the freedom possibly 
I don't know, he's always really liked the freedom of traveling and going here and there and doing a bit of doubles work with some of the doubles guys and doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that. And as long as, you know, when he was even working with Aliash, as long as it doesn't impact Aliash, he can work with whoever he wants just uh, alongside, as long as it's not Aliash's opponent, that's, it's normally okay. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about the coaching player relationship and in recent weeks Johanna Conte who has a new dog will also be getting a new coach because uh, her relationship with Michael Joyce coming to an end and more recently Angelique Kerber and Winfaset Winfaset was with the is this coaching merry-go-round was with Johanna Conte they have decided that is no more and with a coach it it's not always the player that decides it's the end but you are in quite a vulnerable position as a coach, if the player at whatever level, whether we're talking under 12s to senior level, that you are working for someone else, you're you're working with that person. But ultimately, and like in this case, Angelique Kerber is the boss of Winforset. I know. Well, one of those coaching player relationship breakups was a surprise. <laughs> one was less of a surprise. Um, I have to say the writing was on the wall for Conter and Joyce. I just don't really think that they clicked at all. I mean, listening to some of their on-court coaching just personality-wise and philosophy and on tennis and in life, there are so many ways to be a tennis player and to play this game. I mean, ultimately, the rules are hit it over the net and hit it in the court. The rest of it really is up for interpretation. And I just felt like they were always... Uh, it just never quite gelled for me. I think both absolutely put everything they had into it. But I was just never entirely comfortable watching it. And sometimes on on-court coaching, you could see Michael Joyce try and say something, recognise it wasn't going to work and then backtrack or change tactic a little bit. Like he was really trying to find a way in, but it was, I think it was quite difficult for him. With Kerber and Fissette, they've just been sensational. They've just been, I mean, really in terms of if you were talking about your ideal coach-player relationship, I mean, you couldn't really get any better than what they were doing through the year. And of course, I mean, she she won Wimbledon, so I think they did all right. <laughs> but, you know... <sighs> It's one of those things with coaches and players. I always say to coaches, I've always told my brother when he's been on tour uh, and any coach that's working on tour, that you're never at your most vulnerable as a coach than when the player has just done really well. And I, That's just something that I've always felt is that the majority of, not, not unexplained, but uh, the, the breakups that happen where there's no kind of big issue uh, often happen when the player's done really well and it can just kind of come out of the blue a lot of the time for coaches and it can just be the player saying nah you know I think I'm just feeling something else or I think between what did what did they say between Facet and Kerber what was the reasons that Kerber gave differences between them in terms of the way forward and what they were looking at doing right. so differences so, of opinion largely yeah so I mean it, it's pretty fluffy right I mean clearly they're their goal is to win more Grand Slams. She's won Wimbledon. So they can't be that far apart, as in they've worked together for a year, had an incredibly successful year. It's not like he's saying, OK, I know you've been left-handed for a while, but have you tried? You know, it's <laughs> not, that's not how it works. There's nothing, there's never going to be anything dramatic. It would be much more about, you know, finer details that probably could be worked through. I don't know. I, you know, we, we don't know. We're, we're absolutely guessing. But a lot of the time, it's just a situation. The player or the coach just says, you know, I'm just not feeling it anymore. Like, it's just not, it's, it's you, you just can't tell. It's so complicated. It's like a relationship. If you see, um, you know, your friends in a relationship, it can look so great from the outside and you don't know the ins and outs of what's going on. Yeah, I always think that coaches can get a little comfortable when players do well. 
But that's weird, isn't it, to think? Because you have the example of Kevin Anderson, who parted ways with his long-term coach Neville Godwin following the year when he ended it by reaching the final of the US Open. Everyone was like, and, and there was no animosity there. It was just the time had come. They'd got to the end of their journey together. But it's weird if you think as a coach that the more successful I get, and, and it's not always the case, but the more vulnerable I become. It's, yeah. it's quite a weird way of looking at it because you want to be successful at the same time you're thinking, hang on a second, if she goes a distance or he goes a distance and wins this Grand Slam, my my job is by no means secure. Because normally in, in most jobs, if we take it away from sport, that's what sort of gets you going upwards by reaching your goals. But you're sort of saying, not always, as a coach, you reach that goal and it, it might be the end of the road. Yeah. And it does happen all the time, as you were saying, with Kevin Anderson. Coco Vanderway reached her career high uh, after reaching the semi-finals of the Australian Open. And she split with her coach. That was last year before she started working. That was with Craig Carden before she started working with Pat Cash. Joanna Conta, Esteban Carril took her from top 200 or 150-ish to the top 10 in under two years I mean you cannot say that that is not a fantastic job well done and they parted uh, in the off season so it does happen and as I say it's very difficult to understand the ins and outs of relationships but sometimes players can have the attitude of okay well you've done your work now I'm here you know, you've 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 done all everything, and and you've you've said that before. You know, you you've told me to do that before, so now I know that information, and I'll just go and do that. And it's almost like they feel like you've given them the formula, and then they'll continue with it. Uh, and it just does happen a lot, and almost always it doesn't work. Almost always the coach was having more impact than the player thinks. I think I don't really know. As I say, it's just too tough to know. I have no idea what happened with Kerber and Fassett more of an idea as to what happened with Conta and Joyce just because you can tell from the on-court coaching and obviously her results haven't been great uh, so it just seems a little more obvious right but um, yeah it, it can be can be really difficult as a coach especially when you've just done a really good job and you get fired and I imagine it's the other side of things there's the off-court and again we don't know what happened in this situation but you're traveling with this person if it's full-time coach throughout the year it's a heavy calendar you're always together and you might be eating together and then you're training together and you're working together so you're with this person all the time and that's quite intense whether we're talking about a relationship when you just every now and then need a little bit of space it's it's almost a little bit like burnout it, it's so intense you're working full-time the schedule is full-on and this tends to be it's the end of the year when the breakups happen it makes sense because then you can sort things out for your for your off season to get ready for um, going to Australia at the start of the year but there's it's everything isn't it it's not just what we see these people are largely traveling together same hotels same cars to practice I mean it, it's pretty full-on yeah it is and also when you have the coach with you Coaches also assume, and I've seen coaches make this mistake sometimes, that they need to, because they're there and they're being paid to be there and their expenses have been paid and they're here to do a job and they just so desperately want to do everything so well, that they then, they're just overly involved in everything. So they'll be there during the core workout, they'll be timing the planks, they'll be helping with the stretching, they'll be doing, the, especially if players don't have a, a physical trainer with them. But sometimes coaches are there in the, the physical sessions as well. And and they're there for every practice session. And, and I actually think that sometimes, I know it's an incredibly difficult thing to do as a coach, but sometimes I think if you feel like there's a bit of tension or their player's not being so receptive, just say, 
you know what? Just go practice by yourself. You know what we're doing. I've said the same thing a thousand times over the last six months. You know what you're doing. I have, you know, I, I do trust you. Like, just go practice by yourself. But I think that coaches think they can't do that because they're being paid to do a job, right? And they're being paid to be there for that week. Uh, I'm not suggesting they don't watch the matches, but, <laughs> you know, like, but even a, a, a warm up or something, you know, just relax it sometimes because otherwise it's, it, as you say, it's all the time and every dinner as well. Well, if things are a little tense, don't go to dinner, go by yourself or have room service or find somebody else or something just once in a while just to ease but then is it. that a weird situation if you say to them they say oh what time should we have dinner tonight and you say actually I, I'd rather have dinner on my own tonight that could cause a problem in itself I mean uh, you could say that if if two people are a really good fit and they're friends and they get on that that's not an issue mm. but I imagine in in some cases if there has been some tension building and you've had a routine and suddenly oh I'm going to have dinner in my room tonight and you never do that or I'm not going to do this and that brings its own tension I'm, I'm not saying as I say this happens in every case but if you do something all the time and suddenly it changes then maybe that's not going to help things when you then get out on the court to practice yeah and as I say it, it's a relationship and nothing is more complicated than that essentially and people need to figure it out by themselves um to, have, to be a long-term coach is an incredibly difficult thing. Um, uh, on the women's tour, the vast majority of long-term coaches are fathers or boyfriends or husbands or whatever it may be. Uh, there are more long-term coaches on the men's side, it seems, um, than on the women's. But uh, yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult. And as a coach, you know, if you've been coaching somebody for two and a half years, three years... It's very difficult to know where to go from there, I think, because, you you know, if, if you've told them to do something, you've told them to do it. You told them a thousand times and how you've tried it in every which way you possibly can to try and get it through to them. They find it really difficult. But you know what? They then work with somebody else who says the exact same thing, sometimes in the exact same words, but it just goes in and it's totally different. Um, and that's why I always really like the coaches. um that bring in other other coaches. So I think that's the best way to have a long-term relationship is that, you know, you're the coach, you're in charge, but you recognise that even if you think you're really good at coaching a specific thing, you might say, you know what, the serve is my thing. That's what I'm really good at coaching. But then your player, it just isn't being receptive to you. You've got to be able to just take a step back and say, I need to find someone to help. I need to find someone. Yeah, exactly. It freshens it up. Find someone to come in, just do kind of a right come in we're going to do a month thing on the serve come and help us that sort of thing and um and I think a bit more and again I think we see this more on the men's side of being a bit more flexible with bringing somebody into the team for a certain amount of time and whatever the expertise may be on the women's side it seems to be a bit more one-on-one -on -one. but uh, I yeah I, I don't know it's very difficult but Kerb is on the lookout for a new coach I think and we will find out who that is. I think she said that after the finals in Singapore, there could be an announcement about that. If you were coaching on the WTA tour, I'm not putting you forward for the Kerber job. I think you'd be fabulous at it. Oh, thanks. It's not where I'm headed. I think largely... I'd go with the right-handed thing, by the way. That would be my first. We, <laughs> you would not last long. <laughs> we. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think largely we enjoy 
the on-court coaching because it gives you an insight. You were talking there about Michael Joyce and Johanna Conter and you just pick things up. If you were a coach on the tour, would you like going out there knowing that you were mic'd up and that everyone could listen to what you were saying? Would you feel a little bit of pressure? I think there's a lot of pressure um, because I think people can really suss you out. I think it, it, it gives a really interesting insight. I mean, I love it because it gives an interesting insight for me as a coach and a commentator. I learn so much in, in those moments. Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of pressure in how you carry yourself because you're going to deal with a really difficult situation some of the time, a very emotional player, very stressed, whatever it may be. And you've got to respond. You've got to do something. You've got to try and get through to them. And sometimes they are really pretty rude <laughs> as well. <laughs> sometimes they don't look at you or they don't want to know or whatever it is. I don't know. It's it's not easy. But it's also, if you're a really good coach, it's a fantastic way to promote yourself even further because if you go on and... I mean, look at how... Okay, Darren Cahill's reputation has always been very strong. And of course, Simona Hallett's been number one for quite a while now, won a Grand Slam that ultimately is why his reputation has increased. But before she got to number one and before uh, she won the Grand Slam, people, even when she was at her lowest, she was at her absolute worst tennis. What were we talking about? 18 months ago around that sort of time. And everybody just fully understood how good Darren Cahill was on the court because she was just so negative and hating every second of being she just said she wanted to stop she's like I don't want to play this match anymore it was really really hard for her uh, and that was he actually ended up walking away from it and then came back to her and then well because her attitude was better and, and whatever but in those moments those really difficult moments he absolutely shone as what a fantastic coach and I think everybody just looked at him and was like this guy's great. I mean, some of his pep talks to her <laughs> when she was just being so miserable and just everything was awful, even when she was winning. Some of her pep talks to her, I was watching it and I was commentating it and I was kind of standing up like, I'm ready to go. I, I was kind of roused by it all. I was like, yes, Darren, we can do this, Darren. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And then Simone is there just looking at him being like, leave me alone. <laughs> so, you know, it, it works both ways. Before I forget, and before we have to, to leave each other, I've done some more baking, and today I had a Duchess of Cambridge. Excuse you? You had a Duchess of Cambridge? She came round. I had a, Oh, in Windsor, from I the wedding. A, How was the wedding? Did you go? Uh, no. Oh, that's <laughs> it a shame. Was, it, it, you almost, compared to the last wedding, you wouldn't have known the wedding was taking place. It was... It was very low key in, in terms of disruption if you live in the area with roads and not being able to move and bits and pieces. There, there was none of that. It was pretty much contained to the castle. But the Duchess of Cambridge was here. Well, well, not here, was there. Was there. And, and the carriage ride, which she was not on, <laughs> was, was very small. Mm -hmm. It was sort of out of the castle, turn left, back in the castle. So it was, right. it was sort of, it was tiny. So, no, I didn't go. I do know people that went and you get the usual sort of, well, you wait for hours and it's gone in a second. It's like Formula One. watching the Tour de France <laughs> or Formula One or Tour de France, something like that. You wait and you wait, you're standing there and you're standing there and they're coming past the guy and they've gone. And you're thinking, oh. whereas if you're watching it on television, then there's a sort of, you can see absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. It was, I think it was, I, I, 
I think it was fine. Everyone was smiling. There, there's um, there's a shop that sells smoothies and uh, <laughs> decided I'm just having a break from making them at the moment. But they're all named <laughs> after members, prominent members of the royal family. Oh, OK. But you just feel stupid. You know, normally you'll walk in and you'll say, let's have an orange juice or I'll have a coffee or a tea, whatever you have. And I have to walk in and say, can I have a Duchess of Cambridge? And nice. I, I just don't, I just, I just want to point at the board and say, I have that one. What was in it? What, <laughs> uh, what is the Duchess of Cambridge? What's inside it? It's, it's, it's green. It's very green. It well, at least it's not brown. <laughs> kale, spinach, celery, cucumber and chia seeds. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it. And then there's there's a Duchess of Sussex. That's Megan, isn't it? That's which has got, I think, sort of coconut water and avocado. They try and match it. So guess what the Prince Harry one's got in it? Beer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Chocolate. Oh come on, Prince. No, Prince, Prince Harry. Harry. Yeah. Oh, T- tell me if tell ginger. Me if- <laughs> There we go. <laughs> so, so the Prince Harry is heavy on ginger, uh-huh. and there's a Prince Prince William. I don't know what that's got in it. Never looked. And there's is there is the Queen? Does she have one? I'm not sure. But there's there's a few of these things, and it's it's a good idea. But I, I every time I walk in, I have to kind of steal myself. You should just point. I don't and, want to uh, just point and say that one. It's like if you're in an Italian restaurant, and there's an Italian name. I just point that one. Yes, but you point because you don't know how to say it. I can obviously say Duchess of Cambridge. <laughs> so it's not really a pronunciation problem. It's just I feel a little bit... Sometimes they do ready-made ones. So I, I went today, I went to the fridge and I just thought, uh, no, and there was a Prince Harry and there was a Meghan Markle and Prince Philip was in there, but there was no Duchess of Cambridge in the fridge. So I had to ask and just feel... And it was very nice, but I just felt a little bit silly because I had to... I'd give myself a little bit of a boost because I've been doing more baking. I think this is the last... I did a little bit more baking last week for Jill and Miles and everyone. And this is my last baking for a while. It was it was the week that I thought was a month ago at the preschool. Oh, we was there. Actually... As it happened. So what did you make? Did you make your uh, can- canels? Canel canelles? Canelles? <laughs> Canelle canelles? No, I... I... I, I couldn't risk another set of rocks being produced and I, I do think they needed the rum and I also don't think rum works well with three-year-olds. So they were it's to a one logical side. conclusion. I, went, I made madeleines. Oh, okay. Easier to say. Do you say Do you say that differently? Madeleines. No. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> madeleines. I, I love uh, madeleines. And they're, they're very easy. They don't have nuts in, which is a big thing. They're a specific shape, so you need a mould to make them in. Um, and I borrowed one from my my neighbour, but it only held a few, and I had to make quite a lot. Mm. So I was like a machine. I've made I churned out about fifty of these things, and the mould only held nine. Oh wow! So can you imagine? I was just it was just raft after raft of of making these things. As as a Madeline machine, proper Great British Bake Off style. They've now gone to the preschool. So how did it go? Well, feedback from one of the twins was. Don't like this. I thought, oh, if I can't please a three-year-old. Other one. <laughs> the other one had three and was absolutely fine. They've now gone to nursery with the Madelines. I will find out a little bit later. Do you not get to eat everybody else's? Well, they do. I, I'm not 
invited because I'm I'm older than three, so I don't qualify to stay. Oh wow! <laughs> it's a day. It's a day for the children to try food from all different countries. Okay. Not not for the parents. We just make it or buy it. I've got to get round to just buying it mm. instead of making it. But it's a good effort. Well, uh, I think they're just starting out, aren't they? I'm sure there will come a time where you just start buying stuff. <laughs> it will, you know, it'll be things, the first two things I'll, I'll sew costumes from bits of material lying around the house. And just <laughs> give it six months and I'll be going on Amazon and clicking, I'll have that costume. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm still in that sort of making phase, but I think, I think that's me done for, done for what, but we're going to be working together on the Paris Masters. Yes, we are. So can't wait. So I'm thinking maybe it's your your turn to bake something now. Oh. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I could do that. Can I not just bring Sven? That'd be quite difficult. Mm. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, look, we have talked about travelling yeah, and be players and tournaments. Um we we're, we're going to be working with Peter Mercato, so maybe he will look after Sven. Yeah, okay. We could do that. Um, okay, tr- right. I could bake. What do you? And- what do you want me to bake? Well, I think let's uh, let's ask if anyone's listening. Oh, if anyone's no. listening, or let let's be more positive for all those people listening. <laughs> if you could use our our Twitter account or either of our Twitter uh, or Naomi's or mine or Instagram, let us know what you would like Naomi to bake. Okay, to bring in to keep us fed. During the Paris Masters, something relatively straightforward. I, I I should mention that I I I do bake. I make good shortbread. That's uh, I I don't like shortbread. Oh oh my! I, I mean, every time <laughs> you didn't want Jill's chili one. You didn't want her. What's what was the other one? You didn't want the clove one. Coffee. The coffee. No, one. the coffee one. Oh, so right. Okay, so you don't want shortbread. Basically, can we, we just, not? Can we not? Should we just see what you? Can what we not do, you do want? shortbread? <laughs> Just, I make I Jaffa want, cakes. I, I don't want chili and coffee flavoured shortbread. Aside from that, you have Jaffa cakes. I make Jaffa cakes. I make good Jaffa cakes. Yeah, they're pretty simple. Jaffa cakes. Okay. Let's do that. We can do Jaffa cakes. That's done. And I'll, I'll do Jaffa cakes and another choice from a listener. Because we're doing, um, we've got a great run. It's such a good finish to the year. Paris, Milan, and then finishing in London at the O2. Um, which I'm very excited about. I can cycle to it. It's not far away from me. So I definitely can't cycle to it or no. I wouldn't make it in time for the start or the end of play. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I would get lost along the way. So that's a lot of baking you have to do between now and the end of the tennis season. No, that's okay. But we've got we've got a lot of time. That's fine. The O2 will be, oh, well, I was, I was going to say it will be easier because I'll just be at home. But if I'm cycling, <laughs> I haven't decided whether I'm cycling or not yet. Do you have a basket? No, I don't. On your bike? No, I don't. I just tend to use a, a rucksack, but um, especially if it's wet weather, it could end up poorly. I'll think about it. I won't cycle on the day that I bring in baked goods. How about that? There we go. So you're doing baked goods for Paris, Milan and the O2. Whoa, whoa, that's whoa. No, I'm that's not doing, more than I could ever dreamed I'm of. I'm not doing three batches. I'm going to make Jaffa cakes and I'm going to make something that Alyssa suggests. But I said, I'm just saying I have a lot of time because we're going to be together for three weeks Three weeks of tennis. Well, if you have a lot of time, that's a lot of time to do a lot of baking. Okay, fine. Okay. Well, can I can I try a Madeline then, please? You didn't save one for me today. What? No, I d- they had they had to go to preschool. They there's a there's a lot of children. They had to go. I will make another. I'll make another set. And for, how about for Paris? I'll bring some Madelines. Perfect. 
Yes. Oh, you speaking bring some Jaffa cakes. Speaking of Paris, though, what about Juan Martin Del Potro? I mean, I don't know why I, I don't know why I felt the need to finish off his name as if you didn't know who Juan Martin was. You were just looking at me with a confused face. It's because we went from Jaffa cakes to Del Potro. <laughs> yes, but it oh, but he's hurt his knee really badly. It's a fracture. Is it fracture it, of his patella? And it's, it's not it's, good. And by the time people listen to the podcast, there might be a conclusion to his season. But as things stand and as we're recording this, there's been no definite seasons over. But you, so frustrating because he qualified for London. Everyone was really excited. He's had one of the best years. He's been largely fit and healthy. There's been a couple of bits and pieces here and there. And then for what looked like an innocuous fall with the knee to get the news that it's possibly season ending and and people start to speculate that it could be a few weeks or it could be a few months but it's a devastating blow and as I say as we're recording this his season is not officially over but it's difficult isn't it to see how he will be in London let alone anywhere before that I know and we'll both be gutted if he's not there we love doing Delpo matches Tower of Tandil it's great fun I you know I've never met anyone in the world of tennis that doesn't like Del Potro or doesn't like doing his matches. He's just the most likable guy. It's um it's it's pretty amazing, isn't it? But yeah. So it'd be sad to not have him there. But then if he's not there, he may still be able to play. We don't know. But it'd be sad not to have him there, but it does mean somebody else will get in. Yeah, it's an exciting run up. The next gen lineup is, oh, is fabulous. Through the of... roof. I can't wait. I can't wait for Those... the towel rack as well. I'm excited. I don't know why I'm so I, excited I'm... about towels. <laughs> Uh, I do. I don't think I'm that excited, but I really want to see what the tower rack looks like because it's got to be easy enough for them to just to, with the time they have, to grab it, use it, put it back, not involve ball boys or ball girls. I think that's going to be. Do you think it's no, just going to be a hook? Gonna... <laughs> We're all talking about a tower rack. It's just going to be a coat hook. Quite possibly. I, I've been thinking about this since they they mentioned it, and it is probably just going to come down to being a hook at the back of the court that we probably can't even really see. I'm expecting it to be some newfangled, modernised thing, but you're right. It'll probably just be it. But we're working together. Paris, Milan, O2. Mm. You're baking things. We're doing podcasts. I mean, I hope this isn't going to get like a coaching player relationship. I don't know which way around we are. But we're not going <laughs> to, you know, part ways. There's going to be a statement on the, on the oh, tennis yeah, off season feed at the end saying saying differences in... It could be anything. <laughs> differences in cooking, differences in whatever by the end of the season. So are you ready for our run into the end of the season? I am actually. I'm really excited. It's just the best way to finish in London, of course, which is where I'm from. And uh, I, I just think the O2 is one of the best one of the best tournaments in terms of as a as a spectator as a viewer the way they do it with the lights. It's just so well established there. It's an amazing venue. It's packed all the time. Yeah, it's going to be going to be great. Hopefully they'll have our song on, the walkout song. Do you remember last year there was a walkout song and we were loving the walkout song every every year. Who sings it? Who oh, sings it's, it? Um, it's Sigala and Rita Ora. Or s- I just remember something. every time it came on, I'd look at you or I'd say to you, what is it again? Yeah. <laughs> and every day you told me. And every day I said, what is it again? It's called I Coming Home. I think they'll keep that. 
It's called Coming Home. It's Rita Ora, and she's either doing it with Sigala or maybe Sigma. I don't know the difference. I'm really sorry. I'm not quite up to speed with that. But uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we there was one moment we forgot. Well, I say we. I wasn't the lead. You were. So maybe you forgot to start commentating because we were just bopping along to the music. <laughs> <laughs> that is more than likely going to happen again yes. when we're together. It's uh, no, I can't wait. It's going to be a brilliant run in to the season. I have to leave you now, though if that's okay. And you have baking to do and our listeners have to be sending in ideas of things for you to bake. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mind a challenge, but not ridiculous. I'm not a pastry chef. (laughs) Something, you know, moderately difficult. It's okay. So next time we have the shortlist. Well, next time we will have the the Jaffa Cakes and we will have the shortlist for what you're making next. Okay, perfect. Can't wait. Sound good? Till next time. Yes. See you then. Bye. 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 